Hi, I'm Trisha Johnson, the host of Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm here to introduce our special series on technology. Speakers from the Aspen Ideas Festival stepped off stage for intimate conversations about how to live in an increasingly digital era. Tech journalist Kashmir Hill leads these conversations. Enjoy. It's the Aspen Ideas To Go Offstage series. I'm Kashmir Hill, investigative reporter for Gizmodo Media. Today, how to navigate technology. With so much misinformation on social media, how can we recognize what's true? What's the best way to protect ourselves online? And how are new technologies impacting our everyday lives? The Aspen Ideas To Go Offstage series goes into the issues that impact all of us. These conversations feature presenters at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Renee Daresta investigates the spread of misinformation across social networks. She's advised Congress and the State Department about how to respond to attacks online. She's a founding advisor to the Center for Humane Technology and head of policy at Data for Democracy. Thanks for joining us, Renee. It's great to be here. So how would you describe what you do? Um, I look at inauthentic narratives on the internet. Most of what we're looking at is people who have an agenda. Um, and the actors who have the agenda can be state actors, as we saw with Russia. It can be terrorist organizations uh, pushing narratives of violent extremism. It can be domestic ideologues, uh, who many of whom have a very legitimate position, but uh, choose to use artificial amplification to spread their message. Uh, and then sometimes there's just economic actors who are interested in um, pushing a particular narrative for ad fraud or spam or merchandising reasons. So inauthentic narratives would be misinformation, disinformation, or, or fake news. Sure. Yeah. So we, we think about, um, you know, fake news has kind of lost its meaning right now, right? It's just, uh, it's, it's come to mean news I don't like on the internet. Um, we really try to, to stay away from the notion of like or don't like and look at uh, authenticity. And for us, authenticity is, takes a couple different, there's a couple different facets. Uh, there's the people who are spreading it, the accounts who are spreading it, are they real? There's the concept of dissemination patterns. Are they using automation to push a narrative or is it growing organically in the grassroots? We're interested in the former. Um, and then the content. Is the content true? That is that is part of it. Um, but more than that, it's is the domain a real domain or is it a blog that was thrown up yesterday to, uh, to spread a lie or push misinformation? So is your job to document that this is happening or to try to combat it? So now it's moved to trying to combat it. Uh, I think that the fact that it's happening is well documented at this point. I think that over the last year and a half, we've really seen as investigations into Russia have unfolded, uh, we've begun to see the extent to which this has become a systemic problem on the internet. We believe that early detection is one of the best ways to combat it. Um, we believe that early detection can help stop a campaign before it starts, stop a campaign before it goes viral, before it reaches millions of people. That's the way that we think that uh, that we should be handling this at the moment. So do you think we, obviously this was a big problem in the last presidential election, so do you think we're in a good place heading into the midterm elections in November and the presidential election in 2020? I think we've made some meaningful steps. You know, one of the uh, important facets of this, of course, is the tech platforms have a phenomenal amount of power here uh, to change the change the game. 
I think that as we've seen things like proactive ad disclosures, as we've seen things like, you know, Twitter kind of deprecating or shadow banning bots and automated accounts, um, we are seeing those things have an impact. But at the same time, I would say when we looked at the Alabama special election, which was just a few months ago, there was still an extensive amount of manipulated narratives that were spread on social channels what uh, was by happening there. fake accounts. So one, one great example I would say is uh, Umpire 43. Um, Umpire 43 was ostensibly um, a former Navy SEAL, his Twitter bio said. And uh, and when the Roy Moore's accusers accused him of sexual misconduct, this account began to say that his wife had inside information that these accusers were being paid. Now that tweet and those tweets related to this narrative uh, were pushed by blogs that simply took the tweet and embedded it and that's how it spread to their audience. So this was an example of the media really not doing its job to, to go back and fact check who this individual was. As uh, people began to pay more attention to him and to kind of go back through his tweets, uh, observations were made that he often wrote the dollar sign after the number, which is not what one would expect to see from an American. So there was a tweet about how someone was paid $1,000, and it said 1000 with a dollar sign at the end. Um, most Americans wouldn't get that wrong. That that triggered sort of a secondary review of who is this person, and you know many kind of uh, internet researchers began to look at the account. And when you went far enough back, back to 2012, uh, the account was named Umpire43 because it used to be a baseball bot. It used to tweet baseball statistics. It went silent for a while and then reemerged in 2015 as this Navy SEAL. Um, this is an example of how a tweet um, with a particular message is then embedded and spread. And unfortunately, the corrections and the fact that this guy was a bot, uh, that doesn't, sorry, not a bot, a, a fake account. It had been a bot. It then became what we call a the unfortunate term is cyborg. I think it's actually kind of a bad term, but uh, human-controlled uh, malicious automation. Um, the account would tweet automated some percentage of the time, and then it would be run by a human the rest of the time. So it, it evades the normal bot detection that looks solely at automation. So this is an example of an account that was remarkably successful even just a few months back, even after the 2016 election, uh, at spreading a narrative and getting a lot of people to pay attention to it. And that's just one example of something that's happening. That literally one account. <laughs> <laughs> that is one account. So that, that that did not even touch Facebook. That did not touch Reddit. That did not touch you know the others. That was just a straight up Twitter bot that achieved uh, mass dissemination through some prominent right wing sites that took it credulously. And once it's out there, the narrative that Roy Moore's accusers were paid uh, was a very popular belief. Um, through the rest of the campaign. So knowing that that's happening, you know, on many different platforms and that there are hundreds or thousands of people that are devoted to this, to spreading this information, you know, what can we do about that? Are we doing enough? I think that we're in a better place than we were in 2016 because there are researchers, independent researchers, who are paying very close attention to this. Um, Many of us know each other. There's a lot of information sharing and, and collaborative efforts to uh, to find things and to help. There's also a much better channel of communication with the tech companies. Whereas I would say prior to 2016, it was almost it was very adversarial. A lot of times they would see information from researchers and they would say, "Well, that's not complete. Well, you don't know the full picture. Well, you can't see what our data says." And those those things are all true. Those criticisms are, of course, all true. But what we would try to uh, emphasize back is this is what we see, and the best solution to this is not to discount it or diminish it. Uh, it's to work together in partnership to try to investigate what's happening, because we all do have the same goal. 
a lot of people point, you know, fairly or unfairly to Facebook or Twitter and say, you know, you can fix this. You can get rid of fake news and disinformation. You know, do you think that's fair? Um, you know, are are they doing enough? Is there more that they could be doing? Well, to the point of is it fair, I mean, it's their platform, right? And so am I sympathetic to the fact that, that they have to do this work because state actors have decided that this is a good playground? Of course, you know, I don't think that, I mean, being in tech myself, nobody builds a tech company um, wanting to be manipulated by state intelligence services. Um, at the same time, this was not a new problem. State intelligence services might have been a new actor, but we did see manipulation campaigns being run by determined ideologues, conspiracy theorists, and terrorists. Um, there was a, in my opinion, uh, those problems weren't taken seriously enough. And the playbook that we saw established many, many years ago, three, four years, well, three, four years ago now, in fact, um, was effectively run by the Russians again. So this, this was not. Um, this was not a surprise. How effectively they did it was a surprise. But I think that there's no one else who can solve this problem. This problem exists on their systems. And I think that public-private partnerships where governments and tech companies do a little bit more information sharing is absolutely key. And I think the kind of triangle there is actually the third-party researchers um, who are also part of that conversation. And a lot of these platforms have historically, particularly Twitter, had a real emphasis on you know freedom of speech, mm-hmm. uh, and and this runs counter to that, right? This means shutting down certain people because they you uh, have determined that their speech is harmful. So how how do we reconcile you know our our our, our great protection of speech in mm-hmm. the U.S. with combating this kind of campaign? Sure. So I would say that's of course the 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 key tension. And the solutions look different in part depending on um, what's happening. So nobody is arguing for moderation, uh, or at least I'm not, arguing for moderation of a topic or silencing or censorship of a particular idea. What we are arguing for is you don't have to be the arbiter of truth, but you should be the arbiter of integrity, the arbiter of authenticity. Um, The idea that your users should be constantly questioning whether the person talking to them is a Russian bot or a troll or you know some other um, bad actor pushing misinformation that's that's not a reasonable thing for uh, people shouldn't be in that that state of constant skepticism and um, I think that that's deeply harmful for society so when we talk about um, freedom of speech and as, as we all know that that actually doesn't apply to the platforms they're, they're not the government but in the spirit of freedom of speech I think one of the things we should be looking at is what algorithmic recommendations, where algorithmic recommendations intersect with speech. Because we've never had a system before where speech was algorithmically amplified, was targeted in certain ways. I think that there's an opportunity to say we're going to allow certain content to exist on our platform, but we're not going to actively promote it. And I think that that's an interesting middle ground and an interesting experiment for thinking about how do we balance uh, the right for certain narratives to exist, certain interesting conversations to happen, while at the same time saying there are certain accounts that we know um, behave inauthentically, game algorithms do things to try to um, be artificially louder than other people, uh, and we're not going to allow that kind of manipulation to happen on our platform. So one way that Facebook recently was trying to deal with this was these reliability scores or, or truth, truth scores for um, certain news publications. Mm-hmm. What did you think of that solution? It was very controversial. I think it's actually necessary. So I thought that the way they did it with this poll, I thought 
well, let's, you know, I hope somebody inside is watching how that poll is gamed, who that poll is sent to. Is there a, a fair balance? Is it sent to um, a, a very broad population? How, how are they thinking about conducting that experiment and, and gathering those numbers? But in terms of the actual idea that, um, that site quality is important, I absolutely do believe that's true. And that's because, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, we regularly see sites that are set up overnight that look very legitimate. Um, we see them set up to push a particular narrative, and then we see them game algorithms, we see them pay for promotion, we see them throw the content into extremely active groups uh, who see this and it sort of falls under confirmation bias and they're turned into useful idiots who go and disseminate propaganda on behalf of whoever has decided to set up the site. So the idea that all websites are created equal is just, it is just patently not true. And I think that we do need to acknowledge that fact, acknowledge the fact that there is a reputational component here. It doesn't have to be a partisan issue at all, but it does absolutely have to take into account um, who these who these sites are, where they come from, who runs them. Uh, it's the idea of, you know, almost like know your customer. Who are these people that are paying to promote? So how did you originally get into this line of work? Back in 2013, I had my first baby. And... Um, I had to do that thing that you do in San Francisco where you have to get your kid on a preschool list because there's not enough preschools. So I started searching around looking for a preschool and um, and I checked the vaccination rates because I'd come from New York and you know California had this reputation for being this anti-vax hotbed. And sure enough, there were, there were preschools with like 30% immunization rates and I was like, I'm not sending my child to one of these. Um, shortly thereafter, there was a measles outbreak in California, Disneyland. Uh, a couple hundred people were sickened and a very large percentage of them were hospitalized. And I called my congressman and I said, you know, I, I, really, I don't understand why we can't get ahead of this. This is ridiculous. Um, he said, you know, we're going to introduce some legislation. You should connect with, uh, with Dr. Pan up in Sacramento. And so I reached out to his office and I said, you know, I'm, I'm an analyst. I'm interested in helping where I can. I have been looking at the conversation on social media and I, it just seems um, there's an overwhelming asymmetry of passion. Uh, and that's because people who have a niche belief are often the loudest voices on the internet. And that's because when you get your child vaccinated and nothing happens, you don't go on Twitter to talk about it. Um, so the conspiratorial communities actually have this passion that kind of keeps them out there. Um, you know, the sort of, um, you know, true believer kind of mentality. We see this across all types of conspiracy theories, and they really dominate the conversation online. And so we introduced some legislation to eliminate vaccine opt-outs. And the bill was polling at 85% positive, but if you went to the social media conversation, it was 99% negative, roughly, you know. An overwhelming, just, just the absolute polar opposite of what we were seeing in terms of real constituent opinions in the real world versus people who were purportedly Californian. And we started looking at it and realizing that there was um, an extraordinary percentage of the tweets were sent by very few accounts. There was a lot of hashtag spamming. There were a lot of fake accounts that were created, um, you know, where there was no sense of authenticity, but they were running automated um, automated strategies. So they were constantly hitting the hashtags about the bill with their point of view. And the other side was really not playing that game. So it was, uh, there was a lot of harassment that was, that was taken as a tactic, a lot of attempts to silence people who were real people and would receive this deluge of hate and memes and doxing and harassment. And so we really looked at this as one of the first examples of a policy battle that was fought. Um, you know, the battle for public opinion was, was really fought on the internet. Uh, and there was a lot of kind of activity that was uh, sort of on the dubious side. What happened with the bill? 
It passed. Oh, good. Well, one of the, <laughs> but one, I'll, you know, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll perhaps explain a little bit of why. So there were many factors, of course, that went into why it passed. Um, but one of the things that we did was um, a data scientist named Galad Lotan and I mapped the Twitter network. We mapped the conversation and we took it, I took it to legislators and said, you should look at this. This is the conversation that's happening online. Here are the clusters of activity. Here are the high centrality nodes. They're not in California. The real people driving this conversation are not in California. And then also here are the automated accounts that are amplifying the people who are not in California. These are not all your constituents. This conversation is not what you think it is. We need to be looking at this um, in a very different way. And you should perhaps consider the polls that you're getting from your actual constituents when you're actually calling them uh, a much more authentic indicator of your district's support or opposition than the people who are tweeting at you. And does that network still exist today? Is, there, is yes. it still the same hotbed? Yes. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to shut it down. You can just... Nope. Point Freedom out that speech. it's there. Freedom of speech. <laughs> <laughs> you can point out that it's there. Uh, you know, there were a lot of articles that came out after the bill where um, the CDC and the public health communities used what we did as a case study to try to encourage people to tweet more, to try to encourage doctors and physicians, like, you must get involved in this conversation. There has to be a better attempt to push back at this narrative because right now they own the conversational space. And this is, you know, this is a... A battle for narratives. Uh, we see it reflected not just in Twitter bot activity, but we see it in right now a, t- a common topic of uh, a common way to spread information is to pick a keyword to create a ton of content for that keyword. And then when people search for your keyword, when they see it dropped into a comment section or tweeted or posted to Facebook, oh, I wonder what this, I wonder what this is. And then they go and they search for it, and then all of the content that comes up is your content. So it's a great way to capitalize on what we call this, like a, a keyword void. Another example of where you see this that's less coordinated but happens is um, in a mass shooting when everybody goes and you know, is trying to get information, searching, 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 uh, and then the you know Google and other platforms will return the first thing, they're the first kind of pieces of information that come out. Unfortunately, as we've seen oftentimes what it services is hoaxes that are coordinated on 4chan and other places. So we already have this very reputational economy where you get rated every time you get in an Uber. Um, uh, you get a review on Airbnb. On Twitter, it's this very binary system of you have a blue check mark or you don't. Do you think that that might be a solution to this, where everybody has a constantly evolving reputation that says you know how trustworthy they, they are? It's such an interesting thing because I, I, I feel that... Um, we do have the balance with uh, with anonymity, right? I, I do believe that it's important to keep that balance because I do think that there are some folks who um, are unable to speak uh, in their in their true name that have some very important things to say. So I think that that's an important uh, you know kind of an important component to this. I, I do think that verification if you're going to pay to reach people as Facebook's new ad platform is doing is absolutely key. I absolutely support that that know your customer step that they're taking, which is like you should be held to a higher standard if you are paying to send a message to people. Um, reputation scores, you know, I think sometimes about clout. Do you remember clout? I remember clout. Yes. Yeah, so. It just shut down recently, actually. <laughs> it did. It shut down recently. And I remember it. You know, I was a venture capitalist at the time. Um, I remember when that came out, it was the idea that... Um, you know, everybody had this reputation. But one thing that's really interesting about 
clout that that I think about today is the the notion of um, as you mentioned site scoring site ranking clout was trying to do that for people and it went down this weird road where it became about like you know sending you stupid things and you know it became like a marketing platform but what they were trying to do is interesting which is like in a period of information glut we we're way you know we a lot of the uh, speech protections and things that we talk about come from a period of information scarcity, which was the dominant state of affairs throughout history. But now, when you're in an era of information glut, um, and anyone can reach you, and you're being bombarded with material all the time, the platforms do have to decide what to rank. Everything you see is ranked. There there is no unless you change your feeds to reverse chronological, you are seeing somebody's opinion of what you should see. And that's where I think about clout now, and I think like. Would that have been an interesting way to surface things that do have a higher reputation score, people who are experts in a topic, as opposed to just the thing that got the most likes or tweets or these metrics that are much more easily gamed by bots who can go there and like and retweet and things like that? So maybe clout was just too early. (laughs) Before (laughs) it's time. Thanks so much for talking with us. This was fascinating and good luck in the battle against misinformation. Thank you. Renee DiResta is a research director at New Knowledge and investigates how misinformation spreads on social networks. I'm Kashmir Hill, a writer for Gizmodo who focuses on privacy and technology. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and exchange of ideas. Thanks for listening.